Well, good morning, church. And a special welcome to those that are joining us online or listening on the radio. We are glad that you are with us as well. I got to tell you, I shared with you uh, in my weekly e-note that I send out each uh, at the end of each week that I am still on cloud nine, basking in the glow of an amazing celebration Sunday last week as we celebrated 150 years. It was, it even exceeded my hopes and expectations. Uh, and so I simply want to say thanks to all those that participated, all those that took part, uh, Shannon Moore, who did most of the heavy lifting and all of the planning, as well as the planning team uh, that worked so hard to make sure that everything came together so beautifully for the musicians, for everyone. It was just absolutely glorious. And I can't wait to get started on the next 150 years. So I have said in a sermon before that the two most hopeful words, the two most helpful words that any of us will ever speak or hear are the words, me too. If you share something of your struggle, of your hurt, of your, of your heartache, and someone simply says, me too, it's the most comforting, the most helpful, the most hopeful thing to know that you're not in that alone. Now, the opposite of that, to me, to the saddest words that any of us will ever speak are simply the words, if only. If only. If only I had that job. If only I lived in that neighborhood. If only I could lose that 20 pounds. If only I were happier. If only my kids were better behaved. If only I were married. If only my husband was more expressive with his love. If only that loved one were still alive. If only. Those are words of discontent. They are words of longing for something that, that isn't there. What is your if only? How would you finish that sentence? You know, I think a lot of us spend a lot of time wishing our life were different, better. And we spend a lot of energy crafting the life that we wish for. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's a bad thing to strive, to want to work and better ourselves, to improve ourselves. But sometimes, sometimes I think that, that we spend so much time yearning for a different life that we don't appreciate, we don't value the life that we actually have. And maybe what we need, therefore, is a language of acknowledgement for the lives we actually have. So I'm starting a new series this morning that I'm calling Loving the Life That We Actually Have. And we're going to be looking at the blessings for our imperfect days. It'll be a spiritual account of the full breadth of our experience, the good, the bad, the difficult, the mundane my sermon title this morning is The Blessing of the Ordinary. Next week, I'm going to talk about the blessing of being overwhelmed. And the week after that, we'll talk about the blessing of loss, and that will be All Saints Sunday when we will list and remember those that we have loved and lost. Now, our text this morning, there's going to be two. Uh, the first is a fairly familiar text that you probably have heard from Matthew's Gospel doesn't need a whole lot of introduction. And the second is from Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. And I invite you to hear those words now. 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit in the throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats to the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, there are my blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you and from the foundation of the world as I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when that day came you were, and you were hungry and we gave you food or thirsty and we gave you something to drink. And when that we saw a stranger, we welcomed you. Are naked and we gave you clothing. And then that we saw you sick and in prison, we visited you. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, just as you did to the one of the least of these, you're members of my family. You did it to me. And from 1 Thessalonians verses 16 through 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances and for his will of Jesus Christ for you. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Walter. You know, if we're lucky, we have days that are filled with fireworks. They're powerful moments of connection, both to the world, to each other, to God, that you can feel, you can feel the sense of the Spirit of God with each breath. Those moments dazzle us. There are those moments when, when what happens, the beauty and the, the possibility is everywhere. And we find ourselves amazed by truths that we didn't even know that we were looking for, but yet have made our lives richer, fuller, more meaningful. Some days are just dripping with the divine. And you can sense, you can feel the presence of God all around you. And we love those days. But other days... Other days, though, are a struggle, or, or worse, they're mundane, they're boring even. Nothing spectacular or holy happens, it's just ordinary, routine, normal. Yes, some days are filled with fireworks, but the truth is, is that most are not. You know, when my kids were younger, they used to do something that would drive me nuts, and that is we'd be sitting together around the dinner table, and I would ask, how was school today? And the answer that I got more often than not was, it was boring. Boring. 
school was boring. And I used to try and tell them that school is not supposed to be entertaining, right? You're, 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 you're there to learn, to grow, to be challenged, not entertained. But I stopped saying that. I would bite my tongue. And over the years, I finally started saying, good, good, I'm glad school was boring because, children, that's good training for life. <laughs> because correct me if I'm wrong here, isn't most of life boring? At least it is in my experience. Elizabeth Gilbert, one of my favorite authors, said this. She says, I'm developing a new theory that everything interesting is 90% boring. Marriage, 90% boring. Raising children, maybe even a little bit more than 90% boring. <laughs> even doing your dream work, it's all mostly boring. Does that resonate with anybody else's life besides mine? Life is mostly boring. Maybe this sounds familiar to you. Are you ready? Wake up, eat breakfast, drink coffee, walk dog, check clock, change diaper, get dressed, make bed, pack lunch, look at calendar, create to-do list, stop for gas, pick up dry cleaning, make phone call, check email, send ticks, send texts, go to meeting, make plans, work, eat, work, sit in class, study, take kids to practice, read email, work out, go to grocery store, cook dinner, eat, do dishes, take out the trash, give kids bath, brush teeth, read, sleep, repeat. <laughs> How many of you hear that and you think, that sounds just like my life? How many of you hear that and think, I wish my life were that exciting? Now, there is a train of thought that says this, that if your life is boring, it's because you are boring. But that's another sermon for another time. <laughs> We're going to put a pin in that one and come back to that one later. You see, we all want those mountaintop experiences. We all want those fireworks. We want life to be rich and filled with meaning. We want moments that take our breath away. In the Celtic tradition that has its roots in Ireland, I've shared, with this, shared this with you before, there was a name, there's a name for those places, for those moments, for those experiences where we can feel God's presence in a powerful and deep way. And those, those holy spaces, those holy moments, they call them thin places. Places where the separation between heaven and earth is thin, where moments when, when heaven and earth seem to touch, where you can almost catch glimpses of the face of God. Sometimes we call those thin places mountaintop experiences. And we all want those mountaintop experiences, but the unfortunate reality is they don't happen all the time. And some might even say that's the reason that they are so significant. Doug Skinner, who's a disciples, retired disciples minister, he served a church in Dallas for a number of years. He once said that, that we all want mountaintop experiences, but most of life is lived on the broad plain. 
that we yearn for peaks, but mostly what we get are plateaus. In fact, in Exodus 3, he says the call of Moses, who had this incredible mountaintop experience when he was called to lead the Israelites, Yahweh said, you will lead them into a broad plain. We want mountaintop experiences, but mostly what we get are broad plains. We want thin places, but more often than not, we get, well... Life, ordinary, routine, maybe even boring. You know, the great movie director and producer Alfred Hitchcock once says that movies are life with the dull bits taken out. <laughs> I like that. Movies our life with the dull bits cut out. They're, we watch the movies, don't we, for the, for the car chases and the first kisses, for the interesting plot lines, for the compelling conversations. We do not want to watch a movie where the lead character works on a spreadsheet for an hour and a half. We just don't want to see that movie. We don't want to see them stuck in traffic. We don't want to watch her brush her teeth at least not for long, unless there's a really good soundtrack, and then maybe we'll listen for a little while. So I think it's natural. I think it's normal for us to want those dull bits cut out of our life as well. Because let's be honest with this. No one wants to go grocery shopping. No one wants to be on a conference call. No one wants to make the bed in the morning. Now, this last week, I decided to do something, and so on about Tuesday or Wednesday, I was working on my sermon, and I had this idea. And so I went on to Facebook, and I posted, I'm working on my sermon, and I want to do an informal survey, and I simply asked, how many of you make your bed, and how often? And I just left it there, and I sat back, and I watched, and I waited. And here's what I want you to know that the response was fascinating. I had almost 300 people respond, and what surprised me was not just the number of people that responded, but the level of passion with which they responded. <laughs> the vast majority of people said yes every day. Many said it's the very first thing that I do when I get up. I had a few that admitted, you know, not very often, mostly when mom's coming over, but by and large, one person said, it happens once a week when the cleaning lady comes and changes the sheets. <laughs> a shocking number, I thought this was interesting, a shocking number made their bed at night, that they like to get into a made bed, but don't have time in the morning, so they make it before they get in it. No judgment, just curiosity. <laughs> I had a number of people say that my spouse makes it sometimes while I'm still in it. <laughs> I remember my father-in-law used to say, you know, I get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and I come back and the bed's made. I don't know. <laughs> I guess I'm time to get up. I don't know what I'm doing. And some were passionate that making our bed is a complete waste of time. But yet also some were passionate enough to suggest that not making your bed was akin to not brushing your teeth or paying your taxes. 
Others pointed me to a commencement address a few years ago at University of Texas in which a retired Navy SEAL tried to convince the graduates that making your bed will not only change your life, it will help you change the world. It's a great commencement address. I encourage you to go and listen. Now, what I thought was interesting, though, is that I had a number of people that didn't respond on my Facebook page. Instead, they just texted me. They texted me, or they'd stop me in the hall as I was walking down, and they would say, I don't make my bed. <laughs> Almost with a level of shame and embarrassment. And it made me realize that part of the reason that the results so skewed in the I make my bed every day side is because we naturally like to tell people and to show others that we have our life together, that we make our bed, that we have things all laid out. And those real answers, those people who say, you know, I'm lucky to roll myself out of bed, let alone make the darn thing, we just don't want to put that on the internet. Now, I say all this not to suggest in any way, shape, or form that those who make their bed are the sheep and those that make, don't make their bed are the goats. I'm not suggesting that in any way, shape, or form. And I'm not going to tell you how often I make my bed because it's none of your business. <laughs> but I simply tell you to illustrate how social media has deeply impacted this whole notion of loving the life that we have. That we scroll through our feeds and it feels like, doesn't it? It feels like everybody has it all together, that their lives are more figured out than ours. And it seems that everyone that we see is doing something glamorous or excitement, that, that they're always traveling, they're always attending these great concerts and these sporting events. I remember scrolling through, I was sitting in my car one day, and I'm scrolling through, and I say, so-and-so's in the Caribbean, and I'm in front of Costco. <laughs> you see, I believe that that's part of the reason that there's been so much research that has shown recently just how dangerous social media is to our young people, how it impacts their mental health, that they look at everybody else's life, and it just looks so amazing, and it's easy for them to forget that social media is essentially everybody else's highlight reel. That they just show the good parts and they filter out all the bad and they Photoshop it and they edit it and they remove all the dull bits. And so it's easy to think that everybody else has their life together. And my life as well, it's boring. Their life is beautiful. Mine's bland. One study that I looked at this week said that the more time students spend on social media, the stronger their belief that others are happier than they are. And I'm willing to bet that the tr same is true regardless of our age, that the more time we spend on social media, the more convinced we become that everybody else is happier than we are. Now, let me be clear. It's not just social media that does this. 
We're always comparing our lives to the lives of others. Some of you may remember way back in 1998, Ted Turner donated $1 billion to the United Nations, to the UN. And it made headline news around the world. And a reporter went to him and said, so how did that make you feel? Does it make you feel good? And Turner says, well, no, not really. Because compared to Warren Buffett, I have nothing. Theodore Roosevelt once said, comparison is the thief of joy. And we know that to be true. So how do we begin to love the life that we actually have, our life as it is? Not as we think it should be, but how do we love this life? What if we were to begin, what if we were to begin simply by recognizing that everything that we do, even the boring parts, everything that we do is drenched with the divine, all of it. You know, in the Hebrew language, the original language of the Old Testament, there is no word for what we refer to as spiritual. There's no word. If you were to ask Jesus, who probably grew up within that realm, with that worldview, if you were to ask Jesus, how's your spiritual life, he would have looked at you like you had two heads. My spiritual life? What are you talking about? Because to label something as part of your spiritual life means that you have to label other parts as not being spiritual, and that would have been so foreign to the world of scriptures, to the worldview of Jesus. You see, what I'm trying to suggest is that, that everything that we do, our relationships and our forgiveness and our sexuality, our school, our play, our work, how we handle our money, how we run our business, how we exercise, how we vote, how we play, how we spend our energy, that everything is spiritual. Everything has a sacred dimension, a divine aspect, and that God is present in all of it. The early Christians, they caught on to this and they said, whatever you do in word and deed, do it in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, every act is a spiritual act. It's whether you are aware of it or not. You see, I think that is at least in part what Jesus is trying to teach through the text that we read a minute ago. He's saying, you know, you thought you were just going through your day. You thought that you were just helping and serving and cooking and doing laundry, but really, but really, I was there the whole time. And when you do those things for other people in that moment, you did them for me. You did them with me. So maybe if we can come to see that every moment, and yes, even the dull parts, is holy and sacred, that life is precious, then maybe we will live with a sense of urgency, with a sense of intentionality to discover how to be more present in this life, and it's not easy to do. And probably because we've never been taught how to live that way. Rob Bell once says, I was taught how to work hard, how to strategize, how to network, how to multitask, how to climb the ladder, but no one ever told me how to be fully present. Kate Bowler is a professor at Duke. 
And she's written a few best-selling books, and she has a wildly popular podcast, and her newest book is actually the inspiration for this series. It's a collection of 100 blessings for imperfect days, and the first one is a blessing for the ordinary, for the boring days. And it goes like this. Lord, here I am. And my day planner says, rather conveniently, that I will not need you. I will not cry for you. I will not reach for you. And ordinarily, I might not think of you at all. Except, if you don't mind, God, let me notice you. Show up in the small necessities and everyday graces. God, be bread, be water, be laundry, be the the cup of coffee in my hands, be the reason that I calm down in traffic, be the gentler tone in my voice, in my insistence today that people pick up after themselves for once. Calm my mind, lift my spirit, and make this dumb, ordinary day my prayer of thanks. So church, friends, may you come to see that God is present in everything that we do. And if that is true, the very least that we can do is to be present in those things too. And to give thanks for all of life. And yes, even the parts that are boring. Amen.